Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Duncan McCargo, one of the hosts on the channel and the director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen, where I'm a professor of political science. I'm delighted to have with me today Philippe Kam, director of the International Institute for Asian Studies in Leiden in the Netherlands. We're going to be discussing Philippe's book, Cultural Renewal in Cambodia, Academic Activism in the Neoliberal Era, published by Brill and Isis Press in 2020. Philippe, welcome to the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies channel. Thank you, Duncan, to have me. Usually at this point in the podcast, I give a quick summary of what kind of book we're discussing. That's a little tricky with Cultural Renewal in Cambodia. Not really a research monograph, but nor would it be accurate to call it a memoir. Rather, it's a critical reflection on Philippe's experiences as the Cambodia-based director of the Center for Khmer Studies, a post he held from 1999 to 2009. A very interesting time for Cambodia in the period following the UN intervention in the early 90s, during which the civil society sector was flourishing and all sorts of people were turning up in Phnom Penh from various parts of the world with their own agendas and aspirations, some plausible and some bordering on the delusional. Philippe, can you explain what kind of book cultural renewal in Cambodia is? It's an interesting question, Duncan, because I'm not sure how to answer that. Basically, I wrote this book in the aftermath of having worked there for 10 years. I felt I needed to somehow document a bit what I had been involved in. And also, somehow, I needed for my own personal sanity, I needed to try to clear my mind about what I had uh, witnessed and experienced. So I would say that this book is, as you say, a personal account and is a reflection on what was unfolding in Cambodia during that decade, between 2000 and 2010, basically, in Cambodia. And it's an account based on first-hand experience of a non-Cambodian who got involved in setting up an NGO, which was also an academic program in the context of Cambodia, trying to rebuild its own academic life in the humanities and social sciences. So perhaps we can start by, I mean, this book's in two parts, part one and part two, and I guess most of our attention will be on part two, which is your work with CKS. But part one helps us to understand another question, which is, what was it about that period around the turn of the millennium that made Cambodia such an interesting and and dynamic place to be? Cambodia in that period is a bit of an accident of history in which so many possibilities could be tried. 
in terms of engaging, mobilizing, and shaping elements of a utopian civil society, more participatory, etc. It was very much in the aftermath of the UN period, a time when the government was relatively weak when it came to engage with its society. It was mostly uh, concerned with its own preservation. And it was a time also whereby Cambodia received was the largest recipient of international aid from all over. It's also a time when Asia as a region with major players like Japan, increasingly China, and others had in their backyard the opportunity to really shape new model of development from their own perspective. The Japanese got very much involved in education or in cultural aspects in the revival of Cambodia. Japan played an important role in that. It is also a period where the Western players in the end of the Cold War period, especially uh, US and in this case also European countries, Australia for a while and then they pulled out, tried very much also to claim some sense of legitimacy in bringing in their own uh, model of development, which was basically built on this equation of democracy and free market. And that's where a bit of the drama unfolded, because obviously Cambodia was more of a passive recipient than just a full actor. Having said that, I'm talking at the level of governments, at the level of individualities and elements of societies, Cambodia was experiencing a very interesting period in its own modern history, in that for the first time, many people, individuals, groups, really wanted to reclaim a sense of agency in the context in which anything related or associated with the state in Cambodia had lost a lot of its moral prestige, given what had happened with a succession of terrible regimes and including, of course, the Khmer Rouge regime. So there was this enthusiasm among especially Cambodians from the diaspora or people who had been displaced during the Khmer Rouge and the aftermath of the Khmer Rouge regime who lived in camps in Thailand or who had been relocated to Australia, US, Europe, etc. For them, it was a chance to rebuild Cambodia in the image they had cherished in exile. And of course, this was done in the context of a society that survived in Cambodia and that had been very much traumatized by all what had happened. And of course, the potential gaps that could exist between these aspirations among Cambodians from the outside and Cambodians from within. And this is an issue that was obviously directly very much cleverly exploited by the people in power, especially the Prime Minister Hun Sen and his group. So anyway, during the period of open possibilities, nobody is fully in control. And therefore, there is space for a lot of experiments in many aspects of life. Sometimes some terrible experiments in different modes of church groups trying to mass convert Cambodians or sometimes also in the best possible ways, some grassroots NGOs, projects that developed that really had an impact in rebuilding elements of functioning society in Cambodia. Within this framework that the project in which I was involved, called the Center for Khmer Studies, took place. Okay, let me follow up on that, because you've sketched this landscape of what you refer to in the book as sort of Habermasian public sphere that's expanding. But then you have this notion that's right there in the title of the book of academic activism. So what do you mean by that? And how did the Center for Khmer Studies embody that idea and fit into the Cambodian academic landscape? I think that that question touched on the fundamental ambiguity and bicephal character of this project, which was from the start aimed to facilitate, create a real 
international standard academic program platform on Cambodia, in Cambodia, with Cambodians. And the other side was very much to build the capacities, build the resources, build the human resource, build the infrastructure also at the educational, institutional level for Cambodians to be the proactive actor of this process. And so from the start, the Center for Commerce Studies had these two missions rooted in its agenda, which were to encourage scholarship, research, educational engagement, and dissemination of engagement in the highest level of academic endeavor with the possibility for Cambodians to be part of it. And for that, it meant grappling with fundamental structural issues that Cambodia had been suffering for a long time. In a way, the process of building the academic infrastructure within Cambodia was never completed. And it was largely very often disrupted by periods like the war or the Khmer Rouge regime. It meant addressing issues like modernization of language, the rarity of available material at hand, and the possibility of having people to be able to master concepts, ideas, and to be able to engage in part with their colleagues from overseas. So the title academic activism lies from that necessity to combine traditional investigative academic endeavor with an effort to really recognize that one as a foreign scholar, let's say, one needs also to take into account the need to build the conditions for a proper environment for engaging intellectually in Cambodia if one wants to work with Cambodians. Right. Now, I suppose this should be confession times. I have to admit that uh, I was also in Cambodia during part of this period, and I was involved in the junior faculty training program, which is one That's of the right. flagship programs that you talk about in the book, which was at that time strongly supported by the Rockefeller Foundation. Can you explain something about the junior faculty training program, how that worked, and why you regard that? It seems like you don't explicitly say this, perhaps, but as the most important legacy of your time at CKS. Well, I would say that as I was involved with my colleagues to set up uh, the center, we encountered so many fundamental problems. As I mentioned, the language issue, I mentioned the lack of people we could work with, the weakness of institutions, universities. We didn't want to build another university. We wanted to work with local institutions. And therefore, slowly, we got involved in a number of spontual initiatives, by just, for instance, by building a library or by getting involved in writing text in vernacular in Khmer language, which meant also bringing in new concepts, new ideas, translating, etc. And this also, when we wanted to train young potential Cambodian academic counterparts, scholars, teachers, uh, faculty, etc. So all was done a bit in a piecemeal way with small grants that we managed to harness from different funders or institutions, mostly outside Cambodia, namely mostly in US, but also Europe and Japan. Slowly, in an organic fashion, a model started to shape, in my mind in particular, which meant to create a program that would address all these issues at once and somehow develop some kind of virtuous cycle into not only the training of young Cambodian faculty, but also into providing some kind of educational material, legacy, knowledge, dissemination, and engaging also with a number of issues that uh, Cambodian scholars were faced, not only dealing with logistical and resource problems, but also the meta-political discourse, anti-foreign discourse that existed and that still exists 
exist in Cambodia and the fact that Cambodia lives in a region and needs to also engage with its neighbors. So junior faculty training program, if I try to describe, uh, would start with the idea of identifying a number of topics that we would discuss with a number of partner Cambodian universities that would meant to be reinforced, uh, the place of religion in society or what does that mean to be a minority or the issue of exclusion, inclusion in society. Duncan, you were involved in one of these themes. Yes. So we looked at politics. Right. Democratization or not, yes. etc. These kind of topics. So once we agreed on this topic, we try to identify a visiting professor, somebody from the outside first, and eventually we were able to rely also on, on Cambodian professors to lead a small group of selected young promising faculty, regardless of their educational or grades and so on, given the informality of often of the higher education system in Cambodia. So people sometimes with MA, PhD, sometimes even without MAs, but whom we considered and their host institution considered as promising and important, worth investing on. The idea was to have about 15 people at any given time. The whole system works on the basis of a six-month session, but in fact, it spread for almost a year. So the visiting professor would come and he or she will work with the group of Cambodians, will develop an area of discussion, debate, and will tackle a number of fundamental issues, sometimes fundamental notions that were not always fully addressed or graspable at local level, and also try to frame the element of a future program, both for research and for teaching, with eventually a selection of materials, readers that would need to be worked on and then translated into Cambodian, which would mean also to develop a lexicon because many of the terms were not available in Khmer. I mean, all these elements had to be incorporated from the start. And also following this process in a comparative framework from the start. So doing some introduction to research in the field in Cambodia, but also when we could in neighboring countries, mostly Thailand and Vietnam. And then eventually having the participants to develop their own individual research projects and being able to articulate them and in a few months later to be able to present them in an international conference. So there's all the elements of dissemination, exposure, discussion, basic learning, building intellectual and individual confidence to engage on these topics in a comparative way and with Cambodian and non-Cambodians. I don't know if I summarized well enough, Duncan, maybe you want to add something on this since you were yourself involved in this program. Well, yes, I shouldn't say too much, but certainly I'm still in touch with many, if not most, of the students from my original group back in 2005. And I know that for many of them, it was a pivotal and transformational experience in terms of their learning and often an inspiration for them to go on to further study. After reading the book, I came away with a couple of ideas, Philippe. One, that you have slightly mixed feelings about a lot of academics. And secondly, that you love librarians. Can okay. you explain why it is that you're so fond uh, of uh, what you call the subaltern uh, librarians and how you would contrast them with the slightly mixed experiences you had working with academics of various kinds? Okay, this relates to your original question about academic uh, activism. Mm. Basically, this account is, I try to rememorate a bit what we were doing in Cambodia, but I also try to reflect on what were the major playing agents in what we were doing, mostly from the outside. And these, to me, included 
the Western academic system and the area studies tradition within it. This also included the funding and philanthropic world, as well as also in a less important way, the role of cultural diplomacies of countries involved and in the middle of which I found myself with the center. But to answer your question, what I found increasingly in a way frustrating, but at the same time quite fascinating and to me very educational, was the fact that the Western academic system in its own, and I would call it the Western academic industry, in the way it operates in its self-serve model, and somehow is kind of oblivious of its civic dimension very much. The whole system works in a way that it nurtures future talents who will then be selected by their peer. They will have to publish and then to be recognized to find a job and will reproduce the system, basically. So this is a very enclosed system. And when it comes to area studies, and especially in cases like Cambodia, in which the subject of the research of many of these foreigners who dedicated their academic life to research or work on this country. Somehow, I would have imagined in many ways that this would entice these scholars to also engage with the difficulties of the country itself so as to really shape the foundation for something more reciprocated and in long term more sustainable to work with counterparts, Cambodian and by extension, Southeast Asian or Southern counterparts. I would move beyond Cambodia. I would talk about often the relation between scholars from the North vis-a-vis the South. Of course, it's a generalization, but I think Cambodia for me was a learning experience that I'm still building my own current activities today at the Institute of International Studies in Leiden. So What I've seen is that a lot of these individual scholars were very, in general, extremely empathetic with the fate of their counterparts, with the situation of Cambodia, who have in their life also taken some steps. I mean, the very fact of choosing to work on Cambodia is already something that shows that you are not going to aim for big visibility as opposed to if you were working on China, for instance. But the structural mechanism of higher education, the fact that They are themselves cocked in a logic of professional survival in the dictatorship of the metrics in higher education in the West now. The publish and perish symptom forced these people to work, first of all, on their own for themselves in a very individualistic fashion and also enabled them to really venture outside the traditional normative path of academic work and very often to their own um, chagrin. But the problem is that they are constrained. And it takes people who have a rebellious character or who have already taken steps or can afford to take steps outside the system to be able to venture into engaging beyond the traditional path of uh, scholarly work. And what was counterintuitive is the fact that I would have imagined that people who got tenure would be feeling comfortable enough and free enough to finally being able to engage more with not only the field, but the space in which they do their work and the people upon which they write. And uh, actually, this was not really the case. The case was more for young people, and I'm talking mostly within the American system, but I would include also Europeans and Japanese, for instance, young scholars who don't yet have a secure place in the academic uh, industry or system, were the ones who were more likely to take upon themselves to do things outside or extra from their work. So that's something I learned. And 
the contrast with the librarians, as you mentioned, I would not just limit myself to the librarians. I would include also people like the publishers, a lot of the people involved in what I would call infrastructure of knowledge generation. The people that make these universities in which we work, the places in which we can work or, or out of which we can do things, like librarians, of course. These people are not usually recognized at the same level as the scholars, the luminaries who produce ideas and disseminate their ideas, dispense their thought and their teaching. And yet they cannot work without these infrastructure people. And I've came across in my work in Cambodia, in which basically myself as a trained academic, I became more and more involved in the institution building, say in the infrastructure dimension myself in Cambodia, I came to appreciate the level of dedication and generosity of these people. It's quite something striking. People who had only two or three weeks holidays per year were ready to donate half of that time to help the library in Cambodia. There was this immense generosity also to find ways to ship us books, something that is very difficult to express in words, but that happened. And that from being on the receiving side, I came to really appreciate and value the commitment of these people. Yeah, I think that's one of the most encouraging messages that we have from the book, really, the incredible dedication and generosity of so many people in different ways, slightly marginalized from the core academic faculty. So, Philippe, you're a French national. Like me, you did your PhD at SOAS, though in your case, you worked on Vietnam. Then you ended up running a primarily American-funded academic NGO located in Cambodia, where you hadn't worked before. How did you locate yourself in this rather complicated international environment? And what did these different affiliations do in terms of your position there? Yeah, that's a very complicated question, Duncan. And it touches, of course, on the personal I would say that from the start, when I was invited in this founding meeting that led to the creation of the center in January 1999, I was invited by the World Monuments Fund, American non-profit involved in heritage, that had a, an eye on being more involved in Angkor, in the UNESCO site. They invited me. I knew them for other things, I mean, while I was in Vietnam, and they really insisted on me coming. Later on, I understood that it was also because of my nationality, because of the way already the scramble for the temples in Angkor within the framework of UNESCO in the post-Paris Treaty made different countries compete to be on Angkor and meant that UNESCO at that time was largely influenced by French and Japanese, I would say, policymakers. So to have a French person to bring up the interest of mainly American private initiative in the context of Angkor was considered as an important move. Okay, so that's the beginning. Of course, I moved away from this uh, scene, but I felt my personal academic involvement in Vietnam originally also had an impact on me in a sense that I found the country still not very open to engagement from outside and for good reasons. And I worked in southern Vietnam and I came to see Cambodia as a place in which people were much more welcoming and much more in need of engagement. So how did I find myself from a Vietnam scholarship ending up in Cambodia and being French to manage this American mainly led uh, international project? Yeah, it's still uh, the result of a lot of serendipitous developments, but of course it had an influence. While in Cambodia working for CKS, the American never saw me fully as American. At the same time, I must say I was always supported. I never felt that I was excluded or looked down 
for not being American. And likewise, uh, in Cambodia, of course, some people thought that I was Vietnamese agent <laughs> in disguise. But still, the difficulty is in the sense that I felt, and that I write in a book, it's something unusual and always considered as something beyond me. The fact that at some point I was in charge of a center for Khmer studies, a revival of Cambodian cultures. I'm not somebody who, who speaks properly Cambodian myself, I admit that, and who ended up having this influence into generating programs that would have an impact on the transformation of Cambodian academic environment. Having said that, I must say from the start, I never did it by myself. I was always accompanied and supported with colleagues from the outside, but a number of them of Cambodian background from France and also from the US were very much supportive of what CKS stood for, and increasingly Cambodians from Cambodia. So personally, I think I never had any problem with Cambodians. The only people with whom I had difficulties were sometimes people of a certain generation, French educated, who had, I think, and I can understand some uh, grudge in saying that their center project like that was run by a French uh, young guy. But overall, I must say, I don't know, I was maybe lucky. I never felt any sense of misplacement while working in this project. That's very interesting. My last question, Philippe, that's perhaps a slightly different question from the one I typically ask authors on this podcast. If you could go back knowing what you know now, is there anything you'd have done differently during that time? Sure. Well, I think I would have been a bit more strategic when dealing with institutional funders. Had I known more about the economy of philanthropy and the fact that this is a world that can be a great world with great people. I encountered great people, mostly in New York, who were really committed. But the logic of a system in which things can totally change up overnight really unsettled me. And one thing that I put pretty much on the book is the important role of a foundation like the Rockefeller Foundation in not just Cambodia, but in mainland Southeast Asia, an historical role that dates from the early 20th century. And the fact that when a president changed, programs that are built in the long run to really nurture a new community of scholars, educators, police, public figures, public intellectuals could be disrupted without any sense of accountability. That, to me, remains a question mark. And yes, had I known, I would have worked more maybe to diversify the modes of support. I would say that also a bit to some extent with private donors. I mean, this is, to me, the big problem is the disengagement of states or of public agencies when it comes to really building long-term support in countries that have been ravaged like Cambodia. And there are many others in the world, Afghanistan, Sudan, etc., where it takes a lot beyond the words of developmentalist jargonic uh, terms. So a way to answer your question, Duncan, would be to say that in the way I work now with IS, I am trying to incorporate some of the elements that I know now and that I didn't know when I got involved in setting up the Center for Khmer Studies. Thank you, Philippe, for sharing these thoughts on your recent book about how the cultural and educational public sphere operated in Cambodia after the turn of the millennium and your role working with the Center for Khmer Studies. Thank you. Thank you, Duncan. 
You've been listening to New Books Network Southeast Asian Studies channel. I'm Duncan McCargo from NIAS at the University of Copenhagen, and I've been in conversation with International Institute for Asian Studies Director Philip Pekam about his 2020 book, Cultural Renewal in Cambodia, Academic Activism in the Neoliberal Era, which is out from Brill and ISIS.